Welcome to Can You Hold My Attention? I'm your host, Eric Bruton. Thank you for tuning into my podcast today. On this show, I invite some of the most important and exciting leaders in wealth management and fintech to discuss and debate the latest trends and hottest topics facing financial advisors today. So why should you listen to this show? Well, my goal is for you to learn one or two ideas that will help you run a better business and or become a stronger leader. These shows have been a blast to do, mostly because of the great guests and the interesting conversations we've had. You can follow Can You Hold My Attention on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. The wealth management and financial services industry is a fairly small one with a pretty tight-knit group of professionals that you run into often over time. But at a recent conference, I met someone for the first time who has been in the business about as long as I have, and her breadth of industry knowledge and grasp of the trends in this business just blew me away. Trisha Rothschild was one of the early contributors to the massive success of Morningstar making the wealth management and investment research company a household name. She was the chief product officer and co-head of global markets at Morningstar and managed a multi-million dollar P&L supported by global teams of technologists, designers, researchers, product managers, and marketers. In her 26 years at Morningstar, Trisha created online investment services for individual investors and developed a, and led the firm's equity research business. She left Morningstar two years ago, but Tricia has stayed true to her wealth management passion and now serves on several boards of directors in the financial services and fintech space, including board seats at Riskalyze and Tiffin. She earned a spot on financial planning's 2021 most likely to change wealth management list and receive Investment News 2020 Women to Watch Award. I'm so pleased to have Trisha on my show today. Well, good morning, Trisha. How are you? Good. Thanks, Derek. Nice to see you. Well, it's so great to have you on the show. You know, in all these years, we've been in this industry together. Uh, I, you've been over 30 years, I think, same with me. We never came across each other until a conference last year. And uh, we've, we certainly know a lot of the same people. I know that. But one of the great things about these conferences coming back is, you know, I get to sit across the table from you at dinner and get to meet you for the first time and find out we do have a lot in common. Yeah, no, that was great. I really enjoyed that conversation and uh, felt like it was kind of serendipitous that uh, I think it was thanks to Aaron Klein that he gathered a group together and it was also a lovely meal and chatting chatting with you was great. Yeah, Aaron Klein, as you probably know, is one of my past guests on this show and he does an awesome job and I know you're well familiar. We'll get into that with Riskalyze, but I do recall we, we compared, we were talking about weather in Chicago and San Diego and the comparisons there. That was a pretty short conversation, if I recall. Uh, not a lot of comparisons, but I learned through that that you have a place out here in San Diego area, and you get out here quite a bit too. Is that right? 
Yeah, exactly. In fact, as when I uh, left Morningstar app, that's where I spent the bulk of my career, it was right before the pandemic. And so the most frequent question I got was like, oh, have you moved to California yet? And the answer is still not yet. But that's because we have a lovely 17 uh, year old daughter who's succeeding in high school. And oh, we, we always said if, if she started to kind of like falter, we would whisk her away to Southern California, but she's doing great. So um, another year and a half, one more winter that we'll be here full time. And then we have our escape plan all lined up. So you're measuring your time in terms of winters that are still left before. Yeah, you yeah. <laughs> yeah I get that. I've been in Chicago uh, in the deep of the winter and I understand that. So. But, you know, when, when we met, I was just fascinated with your breadth of experience, you know, and as you know, you, we've got uh, similar stances on some of the things that we're seeing in the industry, some of the trends. And that's why I really wanted you to join me on the show. And we can talk about some of those things. Uh, mostly, I think, is our similarity and our, our sharing of our passion uh, for advisors and, and their businesses. And uh, you continue to do that with your board work and such. And we're going to get into that here. But, uh, but with, you know, your diverse and interesting background from asset management to custody to fintech, now you're serving on several boards in the fintech space. Take us down the path of your career and tell us what you've learned along the way and um, about the evolution of the wealth management industry and how you've played a part in all that. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. And, you know, it's a subject that I could talk for a long time about. Um, I, when I, when I left Morningstar after almost 26, 27 years, I thought like, oh, maybe I should go do something completely different, but I just can't imagine doing something completely different because there's so much change and opportunity and frankly need in our, you know, in financial services. And specifically, like you said, um, how advisors play a role in helping people get to better outcomes. Um, anybody who knows me knows that I'm kind of an upbeat, optimistic person by nature. So I, I but I think I'm also an analyst. I was trained as an analyst and a researcher. Right. And I do think objectively things have improved over the years for investors. Um, you know, there's more transparency. There's no doubt about that. Fees have come down and that's like, as we know, the number one predictor of future returns is like, well, what are you paying and what's your hurdle in the first place? And um, I think there's better client experiences, not as great as they could be. That's part of the work that still needs to be done. But, you know, technology is pushing everybody a little bit faster now to get a little bit better, you know, more digitally engaged investor. So overall, I would say that the, the changes have been really positive, but there's I can't leave. <laughs> I can't leave the industry because there's still so much work to do. Our work's not done. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I can't, as, as an investor, right? Um, somebody still needs to hire an advisor at some point. But as an investor, I can't say that things have, the choice has gotten greater. The fees have come down, as you mentioned. Um, it's, it's definitely worked in the favor. I think complexity, a lot of that has been replaced with a lot of complexity, both at the investor level and at the advisor level uh, in their businesses. And so that's, you know, every opportunity is met with a, a bit of a challenge, but yeah, overall, we've, we've witnessed uh, some amazing, amazing revolution in our industry over, over the last 30 years. Yeah, it, it's true. I, and I actually, that complexity is one of the things that I, I would have thought that 
I, I guess I'm surprised that there seems to be so much still yet increasing complexity. And, and you know, part of the Morningstar mantra and, and, and how, you know, I both kind of was raised in the industry and also participated in the industry was to like simplify the complex. Like our job is to simplify the complex. And that has not changed. Um, and there's, there's places where it's, uh, you know, there, there's, like I said, more transparency, but my goodness, every time you turn around, I mean, right. And, and it's all, it's all in the name of like innovation and progress, but any, any advisor now is like, well, how do I talk about digital assets and crypto? And that's not something they had to even think about, you know, three years ago or what have you. And, and so there's just so much, there is so much new coming at you. Um, and, and, and having the right tools and the right resources to, to simplify that is a challenge. Well, I want to talk a little bit later about choice and the complexity that goes with it, because that, that's a, a big talk, topic right now that you see almost daily in the industry publications, at conferences, um, and helping people manage through that. But first, I, you know, I want to dive into your career at Morningstar. Uh, you had a, a very long one, a successful one. Um, I believe you started at Morningstar when it was more of a startup or at least a, a young company. And at the time of your departure was a brand name in the asset management industry. As and I want to dive into leadership here. As companies like Morningstar grow as quickly as it did over that period of time that you were there, there can be a tendency for the institution to dampen inspiration with employees, with investors, what have you. Um, how did your, you and your, your colleagues and on your management team keep this from happening? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And actually, I think that's probably why I love the advisor space so much is because it, these are small, you know, for the most part, small business owners. And I always thought of myself as somebody who was part of a small business. I, I, and my husband's an entrepreneur. So, you know, I, we just, we like right. to create things, right? And, and, and I don't have any patience for bureaucracy or a lot of talk with no substance. You know, I just, it's not my nature. Um, and, it, and it wasn't part of Morningstar's nature either. And so I think the way to guard against that is just being super vigilant. And, you know, culture is a very, I don't know, can sound kind of trite or like, well, what does that mean? How do you define it? But I think you define it and and in your actions like every day. So, you know, you need to keep a good dose of humility in your organization. Um, you know, you, that, you know, the, the hippo, uh, highest paid person in the room opinion like right. no hippos, right? Like everybody has to um, have a chance to kind of express an opinion and and be heard. And that can be kind of time consuming, <laughs> but, um, but you wanna make sure that there's that level of humility. At Morningstar, we had, when we were a very young company and for many, many years, um, these, these awards called the Scrappy Awards and, you know, so it was like, who kind of had took the initiative to solve a problem, uh, just, you know, and had an impact, those kinds of, of things that, that were part of the culture were really valuable. And when we acquired companies, that was all that, that became like a really interesting point where if you're not really paying attention, um, you know, you can have different types of tribes or different culture, subcultures can emerge. So we worked really hard on uh, moments of acquisition. And so certainly in our industry today, right, with consolidation and advisor groups 
you know, combining or being acquired or whatever, I think that those are really important um, touch points and, and, and an element of a success metric basically is like, how do you see your way through that kind of cultural integration? Well, I'm glad you brought up culture because on just about every one of my episodes of, of this podcast, our guest, either I or, or the guest has brought up this term culture and I never let it kind of stay as is. I, I want to dive deeper into it because everybody's got a different thought around that. But what's common and what I heard you say is a lot of it's around communication. Um, a lot of it is around management. It's defined by management. And if that management decides to be the hippo and dominate every conversation, well, the culture seems to follow in lockstep. Um, and it sounds like you didn't have that at Morningstar, which is great to see in a company that's growing that fast, acquiring firms like you mentioned. Yeah, I think I might have been a little spoiled. I mean, like, I would like to say I contributed to it for sure, but I also feel like it's nothing to take for granted. Uh, you know, a, a couple of other just like really simple things to do is like, you know, push the decision making down as much as possible. Um, I was encouraged from the time I was a very young analyst, like, take the, you know, interview the asset manager and then go ahead, talk to the Wall Street Journal or CNBC. Like, you don't have to come to a committee and, you know, present all your remarks. Like, we trust you you're going to be a, you know, a reasonable spokesperson and, you know, people rise to the occasion if you hire well. Um, so pushing down decision-making is, is another kind of attribute, I think, of making sure that innovation doesn't get too stifled. What, what recommendations would you give financial advisors, owners of financial advisory firms right now who heard what you just said and your, your thoughts around culture and your thoughts around leadership, what recommendations would you give to them as they have gone through, you know, many of them have gone through hyper, hyper growth over the last couple of years, have had to add talent. Uh, so many of them done acquisitions or been acquired. If you had to step into their shoes, what sort of recommendations would you give them? Well, so some of these are like, I, I mean, I like to kind of think of them as, as quick hits, you know, around um, things like pushing down the decision-making as much as possible and, and, recognizing when somebody's taking initiative and, and like what you celebrate is really important mm -hmm. and what you don't comment on is also noted. And so I think it's, it's just being super intentional in like modeling. And uh, in, I mean, obviously it kind of goes without saying, but integrity comes into play there too. So how do you like, celebrate a failure like somebody brings forward something that like is a little bit of a blemish like do you keep that quiet and like make sure that nobody hears about it or do you say hey like this is an issue but we can work our way through it and thank you whoever for bringing that up to me or to your manager or or, or something like that like because you don't want like a, a yes culture and I, it's I mean, I guess it's human nature, but people get like really nervous around hierarchy. <laughs> and that was not something that happened at Morningstar. We used to do these, like, you know, you do your assessments, your personality assessments or whatever. And even as a, a my, my management team, the, 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 the folks that reported to me um, when I was on the executive team, we did this assessment and we all scored very low in the, the um, line that was called something like respect for authority. 
Right. Which sounds bad, but it was actually really good because it meant, you know, we're none of us were afraid to kind of say, here's what I'm seeing. It's amazing insights. I mean, what you just brought up, oftentimes I've seen at companies where if there's a mistake made by somebody, it's either called out as a mistake and they're, you know, they're kind of slapped on the wrist, so to speak, about that mistake or nothing is said. Right. Uh, but but the feeling is there that somebody's unhappy with the mistake that's made. Rarely do you see somebody call out that mistake and applaud the person for taking making an effort, taking a risk perhaps to mm-hmm. get something done, and it just didn't work out. But we can learn something from that. Right. Yep. I probably could count on one hand how many times I've seen that approach. Yes, yes. One of the one of my first uh, managers at Morningstar. The, the business actually I was hired to work on was uh, I was an analyst and we were covering closed end funds. So Morningstar had a whole specific product with its own PL. It was a print, pro- this is how old I am, but it was a print product of closed end fund research. Well, guess what? The market for closed end fund research wasn't quite big enough to sustain this like independent public publication and publishing process. So you could say it failed and we merged it into the normal mutual fund, the rest of the mutual fund research group. Um, and then the person who led that team, she was promoted. And then she had another startup within the organization. And so the lesson I learned super quickly was like, not that failure was bad, but like, just, you got to go for it. You learn from it and then you get rewarded because you, you know, she used the data that we had to her advantage. We did the right thing. And then we got to start something else. It was great. Right. Well, I want to return to what we were talking about just a minute ago this complexity in our business. And, you know, there's this paradox of choice that advisors currently face as they, they look to grow their businesses and reach new levels of success. The choices in front of them, whether it's investment choices, technology choices, different marketing growth platforms, ways to develop a website. I mean, they're endless right now. Choice is generally good. Flexibility is good. Independence uh, when advisors go independence, they love the flexibility. But to many advisors I'm speaking to right now, this choice, this plethora of services and technology and outsource options, all these options can cause a lot of stress and anxiety. And advisors are almost to the point where they do nothing. They, they're paralyzed. What are your thoughts about this paradox of choice we're, we're facing? Yeah, <laughs> it's a real thing. Um, there, so there's this really great book um, by Barry Schwartz, and this it's the paradox of choice, and then probably you know informing this conversation. And the subtitle is "Why More Is Less," and I think it's important. Like, there's that kind of FOMO of like, oh, does you know, did I miss out on the next great you know innovation? And I I get that. Like, I am constantly looking to see what's what's being launched. I love startups. I love to to to, to play around um, with with founders and new technologies. But I think if you're running a business, you should focus on like what really kind of like is going to move the needle for you and what your where your strengths are, what you're good at. And then make sure that you have, maybe there's other people on your team, or you can find another way to get resources that complement the stuff that you're not really going to be competent or capable of doing a great job in any way. And there's no, like, I think, um, shame or, 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 or harm in that. I think it's actually the key to, to more successful growth 
is to to be able to identify and and do what you're good at and 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 the thing about in 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 the the paradox of choice book what they talk about which I find so compelling is this concept of like maximizers and satisficers so like I can I can like relate this analogy to to my my husband and I I am a satisficer when it comes to like anything to do with like our kitchen equipment. I could care less what kind of pans we have. I don't really do that much cooking when I do cook. Like as long as we have a pan, it'll be fine with me. My husband loves to cook. It's very important to him that we have like all the top notch, all the right stuff. He likes to go to the big, you know, big box stores and kind of look at what's new and look at the ranges and great, good for him. So he's maximizing on the the tools to like produce a great meal. I mean, I do like good food and I'm lucky that I have him, (laughs) but I am like a satisficer in that regard. I do care more about like what kinds of, what are, what's the cut of jeans that I have. And like, I will spend a lot of time finding like the right clothing and he's, he has good fashion sense. I don't want to berate him in case he would ever listen to this, but he's less picky about that. So he's going to satisfy around clothing and I'm going to, I'm a maximizer. So think about your practice like that. Like where, where, where are you a maximizer and where are you a satisficer and how do you like manage your time and then complement or supplement around it? Well, first of all, Trisha, I think your husband and I would enjoy a, a trip to Costco or two, because uh, um, sounds like we're very similar in that regard. Uh. <laughs> And he also plays tennis, so you definitely. Oh, there we go. Jeez, Uh, next time you're in San Diego, we're going to Costco and we're getting a tennis game together. That sounds (laughs) good. But yeah, I I look at and I hear from advisors frequently when they look at the technology choices. For example, they look at a Michael Kitsis map and they see everything out there. There's ten CRMs they could choose from. They get overwhelmed by that. Whereas I see some of the most successful advisors out there, either delegate whatever that is, you know, coming up with a new technology platform for for CRM or evaluating the options out there, or they just tune that noise out and they focus, as you pointed out, either focus on on what they're good at and what they enjoy or focus on what's the highest and best use of their time. Mm -hmm. And they don't let those things get to them. And they realize if they don't figure out their CRM solution today, there's going to be another one tomorrow to add to the list. And there's, they don't get caught up in that day-to-day, you know, hamster wheel type of focus um, uh, that other business owners have. Yeah. You know, the other technique I've, I've uh, talked to some advisors that I thought that these advisors that I've talked to have used, which I thought was really wise is dedicate like maybe a month. I mean, and it's not like this is all you do in the month, but like, you know, February is your like, technology exploration month right and great go get yourself an update a little landscape overview take demos or whatever you want go to a conference you know and then maybe make one or two action steps for yourself and then don't worry about it for the other 11 months you know i maybe it's easier said than done but but just being like intentional about when you're going to pay attention and how much time you're going to spend as opposed to like oh shoot, like I didn't pay attention to that launch. Maybe I'm behind. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's great. Great advice. I want to turn our attention to a hot topic right now. As I look at uh, the markets uh, plummeting again after being up this morning, 
But I want to, so let's talk about the financial markets. And your former colleague, actually, at Morningstar, Don Phillips, recently published an article called The Four Horsemen of Investing. And the four horsemen are, he calls, complexity, concentration, leverage, and illiquidity. And that these are the threats that wreak havoc on portfolios and undermine even the best laid plans of, of diligent investors and their advisors. So I, I think you've read that article. How do, you, how do you relate Don's four horsemen to what you're seeing in the markets right now and what advisors should be thinking about as they deal with some very worried clients? Yeah, it's just such a kind of, I mean, it, in my opinion, shouldn't have been completely unexpected, but it is kind of a shock to the system. You can just see it with so many investors. And frankly, you know, to the extent that there are younger advisors, the younger advisors not really having gone through something like this, um, you know, in the past decade or more. So I do think that those four, that article really resonated with me because even something like complexity, okay, that people in a, in a kind of rising market, uh, are not necessarily probably all that clear on like where is the complexity and 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 you could almost use all of these four horsemen together kind of as a synonym for risk like where is the risk in my portfolio right um everything kind of seemed like it was humming along and in fact you might not take you might take on more complexity because you you know want to just eke out a slightly better return than right. you know even the even the market itself and and now that kind of comes home to roost um concentration is incredibly pronounced and and it's it's you know not necessarily even intentional or known concentration is just look at the indexes. If you have a passive portfolio, you're, you're incredibly concentrated in some of the larger tech names in a, in a market cap weighted portfolio. So the exposure that people have, I think um, it has, I mean, I think, I think good advisors have been educating people about these four horsemen all along. I mean, that is the role of the advisor um, to ensure that the amount of leverage is appropriate. Um, I do think, and uh, in, in the article Don, Don mentions, and in my own experience working at, this, uh, at the self-directed brokerage or custodian firm for a little over a year, there is you know, a lot of individual investors who have taken on um, options or margins in their portfolios, uh, and without necessarily a lot of investing experience that that you know would kind of show what happens when things fall apart. So it's I think that the poll, the Yahoo Harris poll, showed that like forty three percent of retail investors are have been using options or leverage in their retail portfolios, and that's a lot. Right. Um, so. That that I can see being, you know, kind of a rude awakening. When I started covering closed end funds, it was in the 90s, and there were a lot, there was a lot of leverage built into those bond portfolios in particular. And um we we were and it wasn't it wasn't disclosed very well in the in the in the portfolios either. And so when the returns would come in, it had nothing to do with what was listed really as a holding, and it was really all the embedded leverage in the portfolios. And and so as a young analyst, I learned pretty quickly like what can go wrong with leverage? And I, I, I worry a little bit for some of today's younger investors that maybe haven't seen that before. Well, Don also mentioned that a lot of the 
products and services that contribute to complexity, concentration, leverage, and illiquidity just so happen to be the most profitable products and services on Wall Street. And so those are often sold to people more yes. readily than a passive index fund is sold to somebody. And so um, there's there's a bit of a cross current there. And I, I'm not a I'm not against alternatives. I believe they have a place in portfolios, which obviously would contribute to some illiquidity that that horseman. But I think it what he was talking about was in many cases people have a combination of two or three or maybe even four of these factors in their portfolios yes. right now. Yes, and I do, and I think you know back to like the role of the advisor. Um, is helping people understand even, you know, despite maybe the, the hype or, you know, what seems attractive, like that, this is where the behavioral part of it comes in. So how can the advisor kind of like bring the investor, help them see their way through to a, a portfolio they're actually going to stick with and that isn't going to spook them, um, you know, in the way that these horsemen would suggest. So um, one of the reasons I joined the Riskalyze board, frankly, is because I think that the risk number is a tool to allow the advisors to have those kinds of conversations with their clients in a way that um, is more intuitive than, you know, upside downside capture. Uh, like who, no normal person thinks that way, but they know, you know, what makes them uncomfortable. They know when they or their partner, because this isn't usually a solo endeavor, there's usually another person, often another person involved who's going to mm -hmm. also have feelings. And so I think just trying to dissect some of that and, and lay it bare, you're never going to like eliminate risk, obviously, but how do you talk about it? Well, I, I told Aaron when he was on our show a couple months ago that I believe the riskalyzed speed limit sign, your risk score is as much a, a determinant of risk or a, a reflection of risk. It's as much a communication tool as a reflection of risk. And you're right, being able to communicate with your clients using a foundation of this risk score makes for a much more productive conversation and, and quite frankly, just a, a less complex conversation for clients to understand. If the client wants to go deeper, they're more than welcome to with the advisor, but oftentimes that's, that's, that's the headline that many, the advisor and the client can just gravitate around. Yeah, and, and, and it can also then, in a, in a market like this, it can provide comfort, like, yes, it's, it sucks, and, you know, but it's also an opportunity, well, first of all, it's an opportunity. So <laughs> I, I'm the kind of person who always keeps, you know, uh, some, some cash for exactly this, this purpose. So I tend to get excited when the market falls for that reason. But it also, but, but from an advisor's perspective, it gives people um, comfort that like they're still kind of in their zone and they don't have to be, you know, unduly concerned about the, the winds that are blowing outside. Well, and the winds that are blowing right now, the market's off 20%, nearly 20% year to date, but that follows the longest bull market in history from 2009 to 2020, where stock growth was up more than 400%. We've got such a, we've got a recent history here of so much growth followed by, you know, a fairly steep decline in the last three months. And, you know, I can only imagine you, you've been on the board of Riskalyze just a short period of time. I realize that. But the, the discussions that you're having 
on the board about risk and how advisors, how Riskalyze can help its clients communicate with their clients, meaning the advisors communicate with their clients. You know, what impact can that bull run in a prolonged interest rate environment like we've been in have on the psyche of an American investor as, as they experience this now significant market correction? Well, I, I really do think it's sobering, right? Like I, I was thinking it's kind of like bef before the pandemic, like, did you ever really think about how long you washed your hands? No. Uh, no. you, whoever thought about washing, I mean, I've, people, you, you washed your hands, but you didn't sit there and think Not like for 30 well, seconds though. No, yeah. no. And as soon as the pandemic hit, all of a sudden it's like, oh, 20 seconds or 30 seconds, like, and people start to think about it and they really start to process like, well, what does this mean to me? Like, you know, at this moment. And that's where I kind of feel like the, the behavioral change or the psychology um, is probably shifting, kind of um, awakening in a, in a certain way that like, okay, wait, this is what this feels like. Um, it, it, you know, I, I've, I've read about it. <laughs> I've heard that the market goes down, but oh, wait a second. Like, when, what do I, what do I do? And I think obviously the right answer is for, for a longer time horizon investor, it's nothing um, or invest more. Those are the two right answers, right? right? And, and those are, you know, often the hardest thing to do, but, but that's where um, the, the coaching comes in. Um. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this has been great, Trisha. I've got one last question for you. And that's, you know, you, you, we, we talked about Riskalyze, you're on the board of Riskalyze, you're on a couple other prominent FinTech companies boards, and you've got your ear to the ground. What, what's the next thing or th things in mm -hmm. FinTech or wealth management technology that you think and you're talking about with your cohorts that could change the landscape of financial services? So a couple things. One I would say is in the kind of financial planning space, um, I'm, I'm on the advisory board at Tiffin. They, they have a really interesting thesis kind of around um, driving personalization at scale and, and using AI um, to, to do that. And, the um, one of their more interesting kind of early stage offerings right now is a financial planning tool that's all voice activated. So you can, you know, it just makes so much sense to me that people should be able to say in a few words, you know, what they're thinking or what their goals are. And the math can just be done behind the scenes. That's not the hard part, right? The hard part is getting people to express you know, in a way that's meaningful to them and relevant and authentic and timely, like what, they, what they're trying to achieve. And so having um, those types of like light financial planning building blocks, I think is really helpful for all investors of all sorts and advisors of all sorts. Another space that I think is, is, um, this, is and this is also um, one of the features of the Tiffin portfolio is a donor advised fund Right. Um, platform so that advisors can do a better job of talking to investors about their philanthropic giving. Um, and that's just, it's another way for an advisor to talk about things that are relevant and meaningful to the investor that is not the return. <laughs> and it's about, you know, really what do you care about and why, and you can bring the whole family into the conversation. So it's a really lovely interactive dashboard. And it's the first um, that I've seen in the industry that tackles um, 
that as as you know as opposed to just something like here's a tax vehicle for you go figure it out i'll you know i'll i'll include it in your aggregation but other than that we're not going to talk about it and like really making it like a part of the practice which i think is a differentiator for advisors that um that can use that or that choose to go down that path yeah, both, so of, both of the things yeah. you're talking about um, really line up with the holistic wealth management trend as yes, well, yes, right? yes. financial planning and, and voice activation around that yes. and also donor advised funds, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's a good um, like umbrella kind of um, bucket, I guess. And then, and then the third thing that I think, which isn't really a piece of technology per se, but it's a, it's, it's part of where I see the industry going and it almost like redefines the use of the term industry, which is, you know, in the realm of embedded finance and meeting people kind of where they're already at. And I think this is really important for advisors and the wealth management industry to pay attention to. So if, if I'm, you know, a, a, a low to middle income worker and, you know, my paycheck is going here and I have my, you know, PayPal account or I shop at Walmart or whatever, like, that's an entry into my financial life. And we know that, you know, these firms have the ability and have invested in, in what investing means for that same customer base. And so how, as an advisor, do you think about what that means for you? Because those, those people are going to kind of right now, the right now, young people are cutting their teeth on self-directed brokerage applications. Right. And that's fine. I, I, I think it's great that more people are engaged in the markets, even if it's reckless. <laughs> um, I would like it. They, I would like it to be somewhat rational, but that's fine. People start in different places. How does an advisor think about these, you know, people or families as they grow and become more mature? And maybe, you know, an advisor ha has a need for an advisor, or an advisor seeks to serve them. So, so what's that intersection? I think that that's a really important like development that that we shouldn't take, uh, you know, be blind to in in the wealth management space. I agree. Well, thank you again, Tricia, for spending time with me today. You've uh enlighten me on a number of different areas in our business, uh, particularly as it relates to advisors and how they manage their own businesses, but also making sense of some of what's going on in the markets right now, because uh, I'm having a tough time making sense of it. But uh, nonetheless, thank you so much. And uh, certainly when you're out in San Diego, please uh, let me know. Will do. That sounds great, Derek. Thanks for having me. All right. And thank you for listening to my show today. You can subscribe to Can You Hold My Attention podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as through our LinkedIn page with the same name. Have a great day and stay safe.